When I teach innovation management, I teach several sessions on culture of innovation. And the first point I make is there is no one culture of innovation. There are many cultures of innovation depending on where you are in the industry life cycle and your basis of competition. Leaders face challenges every single day. That's why Udemy Business is bringing you a new podcast called Leading Up. I'm Alan Todd, the host of Leading Up and Vice President of Udemy Business. In every episode, I have conversations with guests who share the inspiration, advice, and research you need to level up. Let's work, lead, and live differently. Economic downturns can make most of us nervous, but the signs of economic uncertainty don't always need to mean doom and gloom. Take, for instance, some notable companies like Airbnb, Square, and Udemy. All were founded during the last recession between 2008 and 2010. This week's guest can tell us why now is as good a time as ever to innovate. Carl Ulrich teaches and researches innovation at the Wharton School of Business. He's also an innovator and entrepreneur. And as a founder, investor, advisor to dozens of companies, he holds 24 patents. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Alan. Yeah, thanks. All right, so let's get started. There's all this stuff going on and all the news people are seeing. Facebook's Reality Labs division lost $9.5 billion so far this year. Amazon's device unit losing $5 billion a year. Nobody knew it. Now, all of a sudden, these companies are laying off tons of people. We see everything from Microsoft, Netflix, Snapchat, Twitter. So layoffs are coming from tech. And if I'm a leader in a non-tech company, now I'm worried about what, what's going on. And I want to know, what do you think the right answer is between innovation and hunkering down in these uncertain economic times? Well, Alan, just a couple of things. First, I, I don't think we're actually in a recession. That's, that's the expectation, but no one has called it a recession. And last I checked, I'm feeling inflation. I'm not feeling recession yet. And the people I really respect who understand macroeconomics, they do think we're headed for a recession, but a mild recession. It's impossible to predict these things, but let's not overreact. The tech companies also, I think it's worth thinking a little bit about what's going on there. I think mostly what we're seeing there is an excuse to do what they should have done, which is get a little leaner. And there was this crazy period, completely counterintuitive during the great during the pandemic, when tech valuations boomed. They became just ridiculous. And so I think tech companies got got a little fat. And I think they're doing what smart companies do. They they don't let a crisis go to waste and they use this opportunity while Twitter is laying off, while Facebook is laying off to say, hey, let's pile on. No one will blame us for doing this. Let's get back to where we should have been, which is a little leaner and meaner. So I think you got to first separate out those two things before we turn to the question of innovation. Yeah, fair enough. So would you agree that we're in uncertain economic times? Yes, I would agree with that. Yes. What I hear and read and see is that it looks like people are operating from a scarcity mentality, not an abundance mentality. And I guess the question really for you, having studied this forever, is now a good time to invest in innovation? Yeah. And let's separate out, I think, two very distinct 
contexts. One would be the new venture context. So you're an entrepreneur thinking about putting your hat in the ring. And the other is you're an established enterprise. And I think even within established enterprises, there are going to be some that could likely feel a squeeze from a recession. So anything, retailing of discretionary goods, for example, would be an area where I'd probably be a little scared about what's coming. But if I were Walmart, I would not at all be concerned about about what's coming because those that's more consumer staples kind of setting. So I think you got to think very carefully about context. And then let's take a company like, like Amazon. I, I think it's a little ridiculous for a company like Amazon to say, oh, let's cut back on on innovation at this point because of austerity. I mean, Amazon has $60 billion in cash. And so my view is companies like Amazon should absolutely be investing in further growth and efficiency. And they don't really have to worry that the the purpose of having that cash balance is to weather uncertainty and storms like this. All right, so I saw this McKinsey article and they build an argument that says to innovate your way out of this downturn, If you believe in a downturn, you need to change behaviors and mindsets. And that starts at the very top. And I'm just curious whether you agree with that and what your advice is for top leaders. Yeah, I I guess I would say McKinsey, to a certain extent, is also using this crisis to to argue for innovation. I think it's a bellwether activity. You'd want to be innovating like crazy when things are booming, too. I like to distinguish between external innovation, the creation of new products and services for an external customer, and internal innovation, which is about better, faster, cheaper. And I can see an allocation of resources more towards better, faster, cheaper than about you know pioneering major new market categories when things are a little tougher, but it's all innovation. And I think innovation is a basic tool and building block for any successful organization. Yeah. So it seems like you're saying that now that the question is wrong, right, it's not about investing because this is what the popular narrative is. What I think I hear you saying is, no, you invest in a downturn, you invest in an upturn, you invest. It's something that you do. Can you talk more about this as a systemic investment? Yeah. I mean, the two most distinguishing characteristics of innovation are first, luck, which is you you don't you can't really predict a lot of the times external factors the macroeconomy technological change those things have a big influence on what works and what doesn't and lag which is you invest now and you don't get the payoff for if you're lucky 2 years but more typically 3 to 5 years it seems like because the lags are 3 to 5 years you really have to be thinking more about the long game and what's a sustainable innovation process with a sustainable level of, of investment that I'm going to do quarter in and quarter out, regardless of the quarter to quarter cycles in the macro economy? I'm pressing because I've talked to a number of people who've told me that they're going through budget cuts, right? And they're still sitting there scrutinizing every penny. They're trying to get to profitability or they're trying to hit some financial targets. And a lot of it's driven by this uncertainty and they're cutting or scared of cutting. And I guess in that environment, I'm wondering what advice you have for somebody. How can they develop an argument to build a consensus to say, let's keep doing this. Let's not cut. Like if we're going to cut, this isn't the place to do it. Yeah, I guess I'll get off my theoretical high horse and acknowledge that there are realities for public companies where markets react to things like, you know, hitting targets and 
projected earnings and, and so forth. But in theory, I don't really think companies should be whipsawed by the macro economy. I think, you know, notwithstanding what I said right at the beginning, which is don't let the crisis go to waste. If you need to make some cuts, get that done. But you really ought to think about innovation as a sustained activity with base levels of investment. I, I think it's very tough to build a culture of innovation and innovation capability if you're adjusting innovation staffing levels by you know 20 25% in a year i mean that that's going to really destroy any kind of long term culture of innovation so yes it's got to be right sized but i wouldn't direct my conservation efforts at the innovation activity i think you could look at other things you look at capital investment for example that would be more likely you know large capital fixed capital, those kinds of things, real estate, expansion, that kind of spending seems like a better place to be making short-term cuts. So when you see good innovation, do you think it's a department or do you think it's culturally embedded everywhere and has to be taught to the average team leader that runs a team of 10 people? When I teach innovation management, I teach several sessions on culture of innovation. And the first point I make is there is no one culture of innovation. There are many cultures of innovation depending on where you are in the industry life cycle and your basis of competition. So, for example, if we're focused on a sustaining enterprise, one that's relatively mature, where cost efficiency is really important, then the culture of innovation is going to be one built around process improvement and efficiency gains. And that culture of innovation really has to pervade the whole organization. If you're in an organization that, let's say, a even you know one of the poster children like Apple, you could say the product innovation could be relatively confined to a product innovation function, the design unit and the product engineering unit, and other parts of the organization could have more cost efficiency focus. So I think you got to be careful about what kind of innovation you're talking about. But if I were just to generalize, I'd say innovation is is in the DNA of the organization and to that extent cannot typically be confined to a single unit. Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about that. To get that DNA, the innovation culture, to get it pushed out to the front line, to the people closest to the customers. So it requires a lot of practice. Let me, let me say, I do think that a central innovation unit can play a really catalytic role. And they do that in many ways. First, they represent a very visible, significant commitment on the part of senior leadership to innovation so everyone can see it. And that communicates very powerfully. Second, they can foster the sharing of information across diverse operating units. And that really can be a big benefit. Third, they can provide resources and training to help groups innovate. And fourth, they can evaluate they can do relative comparison across innovation opportunities across the whole organization. Yeah, I love the way you describe that as a kind of catalytic place instead of the place for innovation. It's the place to take the money, develop the capability across the organization, find the use cases out at the edges, demonstrate the financial commitment, go cross-functional. I love that. And be the custodian of the pipeline. Keep the opportunities in one place, allow them to be vetted and compared so that you're really making the best allocation of resources across a lot of diverse opportunities. We'll be back after a short break. 
Stay with us. The buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. So now I want to switch gears and talk about design because you talk a lot about design in ways that people haven't thought of. You talk about design thinking. You think you're seeing a lot of things in the world and you look at them as design problems. And you've written a book on product design. It's kind of a best-selling book, very famous in the business school world. And so we can start with just what is design thinking and why does it matter? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you have to indulge my professorly instincts here. Let me give you a little taxonomy. So the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, said all life is problem solving. And he meant even at the microcellular organism level that, you know, what does a cell do? It detects differences across the cell gradient. It takes action to, to fix that. And so all life is problem solving. Now, what's innovation? Innovation is a new match between solution and need. So it's putting together new ways of doing things with emerging problems. And design is a special case of innovation when you start with the need. So design is a problem-solving methodology, a type of innovation, anytime you start with a need and pull a solution. So design is pulling from needs. All right, so now design thinking. Why is design thinking a big deal in practice? I think it's because it's the application of design, that is good design process, to systems and products and settings that we don't normally think of as designed. And I think why people react so positively to, to design thinking is they're sick of more analytical, left-brain, spreadsheet-driven, PowerPoint-driven approaches to problem-solving and said, come on, let's inject some, some creativity and breakthrough thinking to this process. And that's where design thinking has really had its biggest impact. And at its core, design thinking is simply a series of divergent and convergent problem-solving activities in which you clarify a problem, generate a bunch of possible solutions, narrow those solutions to a few that are likely to work, do some experimentation, and proceed from there. And that basic building block of divergent and convergent thinking can be applied almost everywhere in life. Do you have any examples of that? Just where people have done divergent, convergent, and just to sort of bring that home in a concrete way? Yeah, I, I just taught in class last week. We were working in class with a group of MBA students on developing new business concepts to address the problem of how to better provide lunch in campus-like settings. All right, so how do we do that? First, clarification of the job to be done. And then we took 60 individuals, had them each generate five ideas. And so in that room, we had 300 different ways to solve that problem. And then I had them get in groups, narrow as a team of two to one idea. So now we had 30 ideas in the room. We put them up on the board, listened to 31-minute pitches, did a little sticker voting, and identified 
10 really compelling and interesting solution concepts that I never would have thought of just sitting there. Or even if I'd said, hey, who's got an idea and started writing on the whiteboard? So that's an example of this key principle of independent parallel exploration to identify a lot of divergent approaches and then a process, systematic process for converging on a few of the most valuable. It's a really powerful concept, the independent parallel exploration versus brainstorming. So the natural inclination today that our listeners are going to be doing is they get in a room, they come up with a bunch of ideas, and you just articulated a slightly different approach. And I know you've done a bunch of research on this. You've written papers and done academic research on it. So can you set the context vis-a-vis brainstorming, which is kind of the default mode for everyone? Yeah. And then I'll give you give the listeners a, a real practical advice on this. So one of the most robust results in social science research is that a group of individuals, let's say five individuals working independent and in parallel will generate both more and better ideas than those same individuals working as a group. And it's for a variety of reasons. The main reason is because the rate at which information can be transferred and communicating a group is limited by the rate at which one person can speak because we don't speak all at once. So you think about brainstorming. Why do we do brainstorming? I think we do it because it's sometimes hard for to get people to do their homework. Second, we love it. As social animals, there's nothing we like more than sitting around the campfire and generating ideas, right? So that's pretty deep, wired pretty deep in humans. So we like it, and it's the only way we can get people to give us their efforts, even if it's only at 20% of their potential. So that's why we do it. But here's a suggestion. Go ahead, call the meeting, and for the first 10 minutes, have everyone work individually, silently, and in parallel to generate ideas in response to a prompt, and then talk about it. Then have the campfire chat after you've done that, and that will dramatically increase the creative potential of that group. Yeah, beautiful. That's a great connection to practice. And I want to take that a step further and go back to this concept of design thinking and everything's a design problem. And you mentioned this kind of left brain thing. Let's just say in supply chain, supply chain optimization, supply chain efficiency, and you don't hear supply chain as a design problem. That just isn't the natural inclination, right? In the lexicon or the writing. So I'm wondering... Where do you see these things where there's opportunity for design thinking or design innovation? Any areas that are counterintuitive? You've mentioned supply chain before, but I suppose there are others. Anything you can say about that? Well, first, let me agree in part that there are some problem domains that are best solved with ways other than design. Let me, let me give you a trivial example. Let's say we have a container. We have a cylindrical container on the counter. We're trying to figure out what its volume is. We can measure the diameter and the height and and use a formula and get it right on the first time. So anytime we have science, don't use design. All right. So design is kind of what you do when you don't have science. And now that's the good news. The bad news is there are so few domains in which we have science. There are some though. So in supply chain, if the question is, what should the inventory of post-it notes be? 
you know, we know the demand for post-it notes. We know the variability in demand. We know the cost of overage, the cost of underage. We can plug it into a formula and I can tell you the answer to that question. So there are certain domains within supply chain that are not design problems. On the other hand, a supply chain problem of how, how can I get lunch more efficiently to MBA students in Huntsman Hall? There's, there's no science for that. And what we need is some fundamentally different approaches or configurations or concepts to solve that problem. That's a design problem. All right. So I think anytime there's no science or limited science and we need to devise an approach or an architecture or a concept, that's when you want to pull the design thinking toolkit out. So, Carl, I want to switch gears. You spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley and you've invested in a bunch of startups. You've created startups. You spent a bunch of time running Wharton West, serving as the vice dean of innovation. And I'm wondering, just any thoughts on startup trends you see out there? And the second question is, do you think now is a good time to start a company? Yeah. I guess the first thing to say is I, I'm not a big fan of trends. So for example, I think AI machine learning is a real trend right now. I think that's very fundamental. But I also think like with trends that are overexposed, it has a lot of irrational entry, market entry. Every time I come back to what what's the job to be done? Like show me a job to be done and why there is some disequilibrium at the current time, either in the market or in the enabling technologies. And that is an entrepreneurial opportunity. I was thinking just before our interview, like what, what are the current pain points that I have in my life? And if I were an entrepreneur, I'd be, I'd be looking at and huge unmet areas of pain in society. So I'll give you a small example that, that drives me crazy. I look at the amount of cardboard that I put in my recycling bin every every day as a result of the vast shift in my purchasing habits from bricks and mortar to Amazon, essentially. And I just think, man, is this really the best we can do on the way we distribute goods? I look at the vast shift in population distribution engendered by remote work. I mean, it's a once a century kind of social dislocation among the middle class. And I think, wow, what, what opportunities must that enable in housing or in the way cities are engineered? And it just seems like I would start there. I would start with what is the job to be done that's, that's and, and why is there currently some kind of disequilibrium that allows for an innovator to get started with something new? And I, I wouldn't ignore the trends. That's my bias. Yeah. I like this kind of problem framing. Design thinking is a problem framing. Everything in life's a problem to be solved. Can you talk just a little bit about jobs to be done? Let me give that example. So my late friend, Clayton Christian, was my neighbor actually, and for a long time, and we were friends. He passed away a couple of years ago. And, and he wrote this paper on, he, he coined this term jobs to be done. The more I taught the method and the more I watched dysfunction in real organizations, the more I realized how genius that idea was. Let me give you the, the method, which actually comes from Christensen. So Christensen, his paper on jobs to be done starts with an observation that Theodore Levitt made in a very famous article called Marketing Myopia in Harvard Business Review, We're talking about a customer coming into a hardware store. He says, a customer doesn't want a quarter-inch drill customer wants a quarter inch hole. All right. Well, that's cute. But 
I first read that, I thought, well, I don't want the hole either, right? I want to hang my shelf on the wall. And honestly, I don't really want to hang the shelf either. I want to store my books. Well, I don't really store the books. I want to live in a more tidy workplace. You know, and so you can take any statement of a problem and you can ask the question, what is my ultimate motive for solving this problem? And you can reframe the question in terms of that motive. And it becomes a more abstract statement of the problem. And the benefit of doing that, so the benefit of saying, I want a quarter-inch hole instead of a quarter-inch drill, is that now I've opened up the possibility of using a punch instead of a drill, right? It gives me more options. And if I define it as attach a shelf, well, now I can use Velcro and glue and, and fasteners and other ways to attach shelves. So the higher I go in the abstraction ladder, the more avenues for exploration it opens up. And so that's a key technique. Explicitly consider the abstraction ladder, including more abstract and more specific statements of the problem, and deliberately with the stakeholders agree on what's the level of abstraction we're going to tackle. Yeah. And I love that, Carl, because you can apply that at home. You can apply it at work. You can basically apply it everywhere in your life as a method of problem solving, the abstraction layer and the five whys. Yeah. And eventually all ladders of abstraction top out at improve well-being in the universe or something like that. Like that's ultimately why we do things. And so if you work in the tools division of, of Irwin Stanley tools and you go to your boss and say, well, I, I know you asked us to improve drilling technology, but we're just, we're, we have this great way to improve well-being in the universe. We're going to give out ice cream sandwiches on the street you know, that, that's not going to solve your pain point. So you go as abstract as you can, as abstract as a problem as you can come up with such that any solution to that problem would make your proximate pain go away, your proximate challenge or organizational goal also go away. Yeah, I love that. Great. Okay, so you're a business school professor. You talk to a lot of people early in their career. You do it all the time. You've been doing it forever. They have great hopes and dreams for their future as business leaders. That's why they're in the Wharton MBA or the Executive MBA program. And we have an audience of people, early career emerging leaders. They're probably not going to go and get a Wharton MBA. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, ideas for those people. They have the same hopes and dreams. They want to be a leader in the future. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think there has never been a, a better time to be a student outside of a, f a formal educational institution, you can learn anything now with free or very inexpensive tools. So I think there's never been a better time to learn. And if there's one superpower you can develop early in life, it's the ability to teach yourself something new. I would just say formal institutions of higher education are not really a necessary condition for developing capabilities. But if if your goal is actually learning, institutions are are nice, but they're by no means necessary. In fact, I'll, I'll even erode my own benefit proposition as a university, which is, you know, in my own MBA classes, I find myself saying, assigning my videos that are used in online courses because I said it better on video. It was tighter. It was more concise. You can play it back at a higher speed. You don't have to listen to my dumb story. It's just a better way to learn certain things. So I find myself assigning the online content in my high-priced MBA in-person program. Well, wrapping up the question that we ask everyone, and this can be work or professional or hobby, 
And I know you have lots of hobbies too, but what are you curious about and learning now? It's funny because I grew up with a very do-it-yourself dad. My dad is still alive. He's 87 and he's actually renovating a carriage house right now. So he's a very active guy, but he was always a gardener growing up. And I enjoyed the fruits of his labors, but never had any interest in plants or growing. And during the pandemic, I, I bought a big piece of very unimproved land and I've become just avid. I, I'm growing grapes and, and fruit trees and raising animals and doing all these things I watched my father do as a kid that I never had any interest in. So that, that's, that's what I've been up to, returning to the land. Wow. I love it. That's so philosophical. So maybe you'll write your Walden. <laughs> uh, that's another story, Alan. I think we're going to wrap right there. This has been a wonderful time. Thank you so much, Carl Ulrich from the Wharton School of Business. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Leading Up, a podcast from you to me. Want to hear more from amazing leaders? Follow the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, such as Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. That way you never miss an episode. I hope you learned something new from this episode. If you did, please leave a review in your favorite podcasting app or share this episode with a friend or colleague. We love to share the wealth of knowledge. The Leading Up Podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. <laughs>